So hi everyone, welcome to Jolly Cooperation, a Soulsborne and Elden Ring enthusiast podcast. With me today, I'm joined by fellow Elden Ring luminaries, the Lore Hunter and Xyostorm. Thanks for joining me guys today. Yeah, thanks. Happy thanks to for be having here. us. Yes, an absolute pleasure. Um, I'll leave the links for both these guys' channels below and you should 100% check them out. So today, just as a warning, we will be diving into the lore quite deeply. So if you still have not finished the game, I would highly recommend that you pause here, finish the game and come back. <laughs> However, to start off, I wanted to discuss some mechanical sides of the game, as I think there's some really interesting discussions going on in the general zeitgeist of Elden Ring at the moment. And I'm referring to the boss design in Elden Ring. And I find a really interesting center point for this discussion is around Democracy's video, where he critiques the bosses of Elden Ring. And both these guys have watched it prior to the podcast, and I'll leave a link to that video below. In general, uh, as a summary, Democracy thinks that the bosses in Elden Ring are balanced differently from Dark Souls bosses in regards to summons and leveling. And he thinks this is overall a negative thing. So guys, you having watched the video, what are your thoughts on the design of the bosses in Elden Ring, how they differ from Dark Souls, and do you see it as a negative or a positive? Personally, I think it's just very different, and I'm at the point where I don't really consider it a total negative or a positive. There was one point that really stuck out to me the most. It was his line about how the bosses no longer have a very strong recovery time between attacks. They can transition from one mm -hmm. large combo directly into another. And at the beginning of the game, you know, you don't really feel it as much. But it's the late game bosses where it really shines, speci uh, specifically like Melania. And Malekith was the one that I was struggling on the most. And that was the one thing about that boss that frustrated me so much is I thought I could go up for an attack because I was using a strength build on my first playthrough. Right. And the long wind-up times, you really don't have... Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you really don't get the opportunities that you did in the past. No. And um, Joseph Anderson also critiqued the game in a similar fashion, and he describes Malekith's moveset as an anime boss fight, where he oh, just yeah. continually does <laughs> anime moves over and over again. Um, Lord Hunter, what are your kind of initial thoughts, having watched the, the Democracy uh, video? Yeah, so I, I watched it... Um... Not exactly when it first came out, but around then, and I rewatched it today. And my initial reaction was kind of negative of the video overall. But um, and rewatching it, I've softened a little bit. I think you know, I, I got a little bit where he's coming from. My thing with the video is, I I agree with some of it, but disagree with the arguments. That one in particular about the bosses, I don't really disagree with though, because. Malekith and like Melenia, like there's mm -hmm. there's not really a good argument for it besides a general stance I have that I don't think he's fighting against, but I think he's taking negatively where I'm more even-handed about it. And it's that I think as we're alluding to, Elden Ring's a little different, and I think what it's asking of like a player's build and their way to approach. And I think one thing I wish that maybe he tackled in his video just so I could sort of get his stance on it is that the combat systems and stuff with the bosses exist in the space of being an open world game. And I felt like um, in a number of points about the bosses that you need to consider it being an open world game and having a much larger scale mm. 
And in to my mind, thinking that like the Souls games are much smaller in scale, but right. um going around and having being able to like over level and they make a lot of accommodations for changing your build. I think it's just a little bit of a different thing where I think a lot of us who've been playing the Souls games for a long time, you sort of have a build, pick a weapon, go for it. Whereas I do feel like Elden Ring in a lot of ways is encouraging you to change your build mm-hmm. sometimes to address a specific boss. And I don't think that's always an elegant solution, but like what we're alluding to with Malekith and Melenia is that in some ways it's those like mid range weapon skills that can really change the fights for you. And it's, it feels like they're giving you more opportunities to prepare for a fight by, by sort of being looser with your build. And and I think that's something that's subjective for Mm -hmm. if that's a good or a bad thing. I I agree. Yeah. And there's also another video that I found really interesting and I didn't didn't refer to you guys, but I'll I'll talk about it now. It's from Diet Jim. He's also a, a relatively well respected person within the community, and he does a counter argument to Joseph Anderson, who essentially makes some very similar points to democracy. So it's it's applicable to what we're talking about. And he says similar to what you've said there, Lore Hunter, in that we allowed ourselves to rewire our brains for a secure. And while Elden Ring feels a lot like Dark Souls, it is still uh, a different game. And in that video, he argues that he, he even goes as far as saying that Joseph Anderson's problem is that he couldn't do it as a melee-only build. And that was his complaint, because he could do that in every other Dark Souls. And Dang It Jim argues that there's essentially nothing as a pure melee build anymore, because mm-hmm. there are so many other tools for us to use. We can craft things, such as uh, throwing knives and jars, and there's also the weapon arts. Uh, there's a plethora of different options. And like you say, you're given larval uh, tears or tears. I can't remember what they, what they are. Um, in quite large numbers by the end of the game. So if you do need to make adjustments to your build, then you can, in fact, do so. So my thoughts on the demod video is that initially I agreed with his points, but I didn't necessarily agree that it's a negative thing. Um, It allowed me to accept that Elden Ring is a different game because when I first played Elden Ring, I was actually very frustrated, and I maybe played it like Joseph Anderson did and got frustrated I couldn't play it like Dark Souls 3. Uh, but watching Demod's video actually made me enjoy the game more because I accepted his points, but didn't agree it's a bad thing, uh, and I just adapted my playstyle accordingly. And ever since then, I've actually enjoyed every subsequent playthrough more. What were your yeah, thoughts? I can on definitely the- see how yeah. that would be a subjective, positive or negative. Um, yeah, you know that was an anticipate or a, a thought I had when I first saw the trailers and. Um, we, do- we dove into the leaks way back then about some new spells that had leaked. And I could kind of tell that they were encouraging that this isn't really going to be a melee-only game. While melee-only has kind of been like the primary strategy for every Dark Souls game, it's kind of a challenge that you have to go out of your way to accomplish now. Yeah. Right. And with the Ashes of War and the uh, all the spells... and. I don't know if you'll notice this too, but the majority of weapons have a intelligence or a faith scaling with them. So it, it really does push you down that path of a combined build. Yep. And sure. it um it definitely was a rewiring of the brain as a like a souls veteran. Mm-hmm. That at the beginning of the game you don't really feel as much, but once you get to those bosses that switch between range and speed. It really does start to stick out. 
And personally, I like I said, I really can't pinpoint how I feel about it exactly because at times I was very frustrated with it and at other times I was having a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I'm the same as I went. My first playthrough, like I say, I was actually very frustrated by the end. Um, but when I've listened to these discussions, instead of taking it negatively, it's actually made me enjoy the game more because I've just let go that it's not Dark Souls 4 and I can't right. play it the same way. The The way that Dang It Jim uh, describes it, he says if we all treated it as a cross between Sekiro and Dark Souls, we might all be more happy and understand how we should play it more. As someone who's a fan of Sekiro's, I still know you, you know it's probably your favorite um, FromSoft game. Mm -hmm. What would you say that there's elements of Sekiro that are being taken into account in this game at all? Do you feel it at all? Um, yes, I would say that in the way that certain Ashes of War are meant to be used in certain situations, just like the prosthetics were back then. And if you keep that in mind then it opens up a lot of strategies. Like, for example, something I didn't even think about. Somebody told me this and I saw a video about it. And I was so mad at myself for not thinking about it. Is Melania's flurry attack that almost feels undodgeable. You can mm -hmm. knock her out of the air with like pots or uh, yeah. throwable items. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh man, why didn't I think about that? Because that that's Sekiro right there. Yeah. And the, uh, the I don't know what they're called in Elden Ring, but the Mist Raven Feathers those kind of make a return too. And those can also be used in that situation. And so by the time I had already beaten the game, I was kind of slapping myself for not being creative like that. And I wish I would have known. Yeah, same. I definitely was just wielding my, my kind of colossal weapon and, and not really using any of the other tools. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was your first playthrough like, Lore Hunter? Did you use these tools or were you playing uh, at like a classics, classic Souls game? So it was a bit of a mix. I went um, strength and faith, but um, mm. faith is kind of notoriously slow compared to sorcery. I think even still at this point, they made some adjustments. So I I was able to sort of take advantage of some of the like the more ranged stuff that I was using. But like by the time I got to like Malaketh and stuff, I was using the uh, blasphemous blade. And like I was, I was employing like pre nerf mimic tier when I needed to. So two people using the blasphemous blade is kind of now Disgusting. understood to be a very overpowered combo, especially with the smarter mimic. Right. So like it was interesting because to, to um, democracy's point, I was fighting Malaketh and I was like, a half dozen attempts in and I was doing pretty well by myself and I was like I feel like I'm just about there like I'm doing pretty solid damage but I'm having trouble finding those windows and I was right. like I was like okay I'll pop mimic just to see how it goes it was the end of a late night session and Malaketh just melted like butter and yeah. I didn't feel great about that but one thing that I'd like to sort of add on to just a few of democracy's points is um, he sort of argues, I think one of the cruxes of his videos that spirit summons are kind of a problem. He's not damning the use of them, but saying that no. they're sort of a fundamental issue. And, you know, there's a few nuances to it that I don't quite agree with, whilst kind of agreeing with the overall point a bit that um, they can be 
difficult for balancing. But one thing about like Mimic Tier is it's not really any different than if you bring in a player and they're just really, really good. Like not so much at the opening, but I think um, I've been in experiences where, and I've been the player in experiences where you get summoned in or you summon in someone and you just know the game or you have a really good build and you just destroy the boss for the person. <laughs> Wipe them, yeah. And and yeah. Um, Democracy argued that the uh, spirit summons didn't add any health to the boss, but I was thinking the Mimic tier, even at its most powerful, isn't as powerful as some of the summons, some of the Sun Bros I brought in back in the yeah. day, because they just ripped through bosses for you. And But the Mimic tier did give me that feeling on Malekith where I was like, oh, I feel like I kind of lost the experience just a little bit. But I didn't... You know, I don't think it was the ideal experience that I wanted to have, but I also felt that I kind of knew what I was doing, <laughs> like a little bit, because I knew it was the end of a late night session, and I knew that Mimic Tier was pretty strong, because I'd seen it in action before. And I was like, well, I could have used another summon, because another one of uh, Democracy's points that I'm, I don't disagree with, but he said that using them is pretty trivial. And my sort of feeling about the general, like, if you summon in someone in the Souls games, you had to use an item. And really the only barrier to having that item was grinding and farming the yeah. item if you really wanted to. And I actually feel like the high FP cost of some of the summons creates a more tactical yeah. You can't always well, just employ them, especially at the start of the end game fights. Like, unless it's like, you know, like a horror... Yeah, Horatlu, you're okay, but like Melenia, or like you, you have to be kind of careful and you have to read the room before you pop <laughs> yeah. them. So, like, you know, it's like I think he brings up a lot of interesting points. And reading the comments in his video, there's a lot right. of people who feel similar, but I do sort of agree with you guys that it just feels different. And um, to throw it out to um, a FromSoft reference, I got the feeling that it felt a little more um, Kingsfield. In the sense that when you right. in the Kingsfield games, you're not pure melee or pure caster. You have spells and you have weapons, and all sort of play styles you use both. And I felt like Elden Ring makes a few nods to Kingsfield enemies throughout the game with some of their like the like the octopuses are kind of a Kingsfield sort of nod, I think. And um I think some of that maybe what they're like tapping into is yeah. that that more of that adventure where you have a big kit of parts sort of like Sekiro as well and you just have to choose how to employ them and it's sort of mm. up to you sometimes because another thing that uh democracy was saying and i'll throw to you guys is he said like some bosses you know they could be really hard or really easy depending on how op you are and to be honest that's kind of my experience with the souls games in general like i've never played a souls game where i couldn't essentially break it if i wanted to yeah, definitely. Um, you know, for me, I never really went past 125 in my playthrough. I kind of felt like if I did go past that, I would be making the game a little bit too easy. But even then, I felt around that level that even with some spirit summons, the game was still very hard, especially Melania the first time through, Malekith. Um, and up until then, I really hadn't been challenged in a boss fight to that extent besides... Well, I mean, Radon and uh, maybe Margit the first time. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the game, I just kind of felt like if I knew how to approach them in a way that uh, utilized a lot of the new features like with magic and stuff, because I was doing like a dual strength and a sorcery build, 
there it was pretty easy to pick up on how how you could break the game like that and yeah. on my second playthrough i went i went through it with uh katanas and honestly it i mean it felt like if i had start, if i had started the game with katanas and saw how potent bleed was then it just would have been a cakewalk <laughs> yeah i mean it, it honestly <laughs> And I might be kind of stretching when I say this, but it, it kind of felt like the game was made for katanas. Just the way the timings with the bosses was, how strong bleed was. It, yeah. it felt right for the game. Yeah. And uh, yeah, because I, I, I always go strength built at the beginning, and I was the same as I was that one of my second and third playthroughs were katanas. And the timings, especially for the late game bosses, feel better. Um, Melania is difficult with a colossal sword there is no doubt about that no matter what you think about her she is difficult with a with a colossal sword but but thinking of the tools that are in the game there's so much for you to use and to give an example i i started a new game recently as a caster as a caster right which is powerful enough however i find myself rarely using the cast because i found a certain ash of war in caled called fire of the red means are you too familiar with it Yes. <laughs> I've seen it, that in uh, it, it, is, it. it is ridiculous. <laughs> I am staggering every boss within two casts of its really minuscule FP cost. And it does just show that once you accept that you maybe should be just... Impl- I didn't... On my first playthrough, you know, I didn't use a lot of Ash 4. I, was, I played very much like a Dark Souls 1. I just had my big sword and I thought I could be and uh, right bumper everything. But as soon as you start expanding your repertoire... Um, it is really illuminating to the amount of overpowered kit that you can have. And then I went back and fought Margit with this this Ash of War, and he was just being staggered uh, every time after two casts of it. And it, it's it is ridiculous how powerful you can become. What what I would say about Demod, um, and I, and I want to say this to to the people that are listening to this is that um, conversation starters like his video are actually really useful. Um, as a community because we are all, all starting to try and figure out what the game really is and when i went into it i didn't really understand and it took demod's percept uh, like perspective on it for me to realize what i was feeling about the game and i was frustrated initially comparing it to dark souls but as soon as i watched his video um whilst i agreed with his points unlike him i didn't see it as any negative i saw it as an opportunity to expand myself and use the new systems and i actually now really enjoy the game far more than you know i did the first time and it is i'm now considering if it is one of my favorite you know from software games because of the way that i've managed to change my perception so these conversations are are really useful and really valuable um Mm -hmm. but one thing i want to talk about is he specifically focuses on the end game bosses and you mentioned zio that despite your high level which would be really high for dark souls we're talking like Ring City level, maybe 120 or something like that. The reason that some of them are difficult is because they he calls it the Forgotten King effect by the way that they hit like trucks, no matter what your health is. Yeah. Do you do you see that there are any problems with the late game bosses at all? Do you think they're unfair, or do you think it is that they just are meant to be difficult because it's an open world game? Um, I don't think they're necessarily unfair. I mean, they're if you learn their moves, you can definitely dodge it. But well, except for maybe the uh, the waterfowl yeah. dance, but yeah, I do think, and this is kind of something I was I've been pondering a lot lately. 
is that I feel there was a missed opportunity to evolve the boss formula further. And, you know, they kind of just took it to where more damage, faster attacks. And to me, I don't like the, how that punishes a certain playstyle while rewarding another for necessarily every boss after that midpoint. And, you know, I think it works for Elden Ring, but I don't... I don't think they can pull this off a second time without changing or evolving it in a major way because I feel like it may just grow stale and we'll get frustrated. But I do feel like for Elden Ring itself, it works at the moment. Laurent, did you have anything to add on, on kind of the late game boss or how you feel the combat's evolved in this game? Yeah, and I think Zio brings up some really good points that I, I agree with in that um, you know, I I I will go out there and say that I think the late game bosses do become a little bit more hit or miss. I did notice, like um, in Democracy's video, like there's a lot of focus on like Malakath and Melenia. I sort yeah. of give Melenia a pass because she's supposed to be like the nameless king. Not to say that I don't right. think the fight's a little. I think the fight could be tuned a little better, but I think yeah. it's in the level of tuning, not a fundamental issue. Like I think there could I be. Agree. I think it's like a boss design issue, but you never hear like Horalu really come up. Like I think he does mention Horalu a bit, but I think that's a really excellent fight. And oh, I agree. Like, like I like Radagon too. My issue with that's Radagon it. is that I don't like that Elden Beast is tacked on to the end. I think that's and you end up fighting Radagon about uh, fifty times. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the unfortunate yeah. thing there. But um, what Zaya was saying is something that I've was thinking about pre-release and something I was hoping they might tap into. That I agree that I don't think they achieved, which is. If you look at the course of the Souls games, you see that you get stuff like weapon arts, you know, uh, a dedicated jump, we have the stance. These are all things that are tools given to the player. The player is getting this increasing repertoire of abilities, but the bosses essentially have the same fundamental mm-hmm. way of challenging you. Yeah. yeah, like Sekiro did change that with like Makiri, like in some like the bosses could do some of that stuff on you, but I agree with Zio that I want to see bosses like it always feels like bosses are reacting how they're built according to the players. And because players got better at things, they started having roll catches and 360 punishes if you were too close. And they're they're always doing stuff to sort of mitigate the increasing skill of the players. Mm -hmm. But the bosses themselves don't really challenge the player in a Mm -hmm. fundamentally different way than Dark Souls 1. It's just way ramped up, I think. Yeah, there's no more dimensions. They're more tuned to a, a new level where they have yeah. the, the kind of connecting combinations and things, you know, that they didn't have in Dark Souls 1. And they kind of can react. Like Margit can do optional, you know, combos yeah. if you come closer to him uh, in certain animations. Um, what I would say about the final bosses is I, I do agree it's a tuning issue. I think Melania is actually quite a good boss. I think Waterfowl would be fine if they just maybe added a couple of seconds of delay when she when she revs it up um because my my issue with it is that i've sometimes literally been mid swing and she's broken out of a stagger and jumped up into the air and killed me while i'm still finishing that swing i find that quite annoying there's not a huge amount of time to to react but it's just different ways of playing it i don't i don't necessarily think she's a bad boss i just think there's slightly slight tuning issues um what i would say is that there are some excellent bosses near the end i think moog's a great fight i really hated him the first time i did it because i kept just kept dying to his blood lava um but when i was doing my lore video on moog um i i fought him a lot basically to get some good kind of shots and and just kept dying just to try and get more and more shots and the more i played him i actually 
he feels more like a traditional Dark Souls fight, and it was pretty satisfying. Yes. It's just that he's got the AOE attacks. Maybe is the kind of other part of it. But would you do you, do you not think he's kind of more a classic, classic from soft boss with the slow swings yeah, and things like that? Definitely. I mean, he and the thing Moog has what Democracy was talking about with that kind of the pause between combos. You know, he doesn't immediately switch to a right. new attack where you can't dodge it. And he was a fight I was specifically thinking about in a way that they could evolve because. You have that second phase transition, but the way you kind of counter that is just by having a flask that you drink. I think there could have been a I very um, do that that part. I don't know. You never found it. No, I I just don't think they needed to do that that strange oh, yeah. transition because it's either it kills you, or you have a a thing that nullifies it completely. So it seems kind of pointless. I, I don't know. Maybe. As you discussed, as you discussed, there should have been some mechanic for you to avoid it or something. I just think right, yeah, like, exactly. I think there could have yeah. been, you know, that would have been a great opportunity to introduce some kind of mechanic or like a a challenge the player has to do while he's winding it up. Right. You know, this is just an idea. I'm not saying necessarily this, but like things might spawn around the arena. You have to go run and break them, or you know, some kind of. Or run up to you got a way to challenge the player other than or something, right? Yeah, you have to right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just something something to challenge the player in another dimension, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, the other the, there's definitely room for that. For sure. The final thing I'll mention is gimmick bosses. I think that um Rikard's actually the best gimmick for boss they've managed, in my opinion. Uh, I think they've always tried to incorporate gimmick bosses, and I think they need to look into that type of slightly different boss more like you say there's more opportunities to expand them in did you guys enjoy record or not was that just me i just thought it was quite a fun i just thought it was a fun fight i had a fun time fighting him when i, when I fought him yeah i really liked the spectacle of it um yeah yeah maybe not so much the mechanics because there were only like three attacks the snake could do <laughs> but i definitely felt yeah that it was a uh definitely a highlight of the playthrough yeah yeah did you enjoy as well, Lore Hunter, that, that whole that whole finale of that that kind of Oh yeah. Place? I I I really like Rykard as a character. And you know, one thing I'll say is boss mechanics aside, like I think Elden Ring just kills it when it comes to bombast and presentation. And like oh, Rykard is great. like oh, yeah. Rykard is just so good because I think the fight is the best version of that. Like Yorm, kind of boring, you know, like, like Storm King would be the other one, like, especially in the remake for Demon yeah. Souls, that's one's pretty good, but I, I really like Rykard's whole thing, the presentation, I just think it's a fun fight from beginning to end, and like you're saying, like, it's not particularly difficult, I think it no. might depend on your build, because, um, like, I, going strength and, like, faith, I think the Serpent Spear was, like, already, like, doing a little better on the scaling, but, mm. um, it's just a fun fight, and I just love the character, and I like it when they do take a chance to like make a fight a real character fight. I think that's what sort of shines through with like Horaloo as well. Is there yeah. such characters, and I think um, I think that really, I think that makes up for a lot of stuff for me personally. Where it's yeah. like I know it's it's really I want a good experience, and those memorable cutscenes and all that stuff are just part of the whole package. Yeah, he's certainly not a challenging boss fight, but that whole that was a high point, like Zio says. Uh, you know, a challenging boss is good, but there's no problem with having a gimmick boss in that they just take a chance and make it an absolute spectacle. 
Like when yeah. you're running around this arena and he's unleashing Rackler's <laughs> Rancor and oh, yeah. <laughs> pulling up pulling up the blasphemous blade and the whole arena just goes red and it's just oh it's an incredible show. <laughs> incredible show. Um, my, my, I know, I know I've, I've lingered on this subject for so long, but this is a, a discourse that I've actually really enjoyed getting involved with uh, on YouTube. So I do apologize for dragging it out. Um, the, the the last thing I'll say is that um, just to summarize the, the discussion for for people that are listening is just that the bosses are different in Elden Ring, and I do think that people like Demod are, are opening up really interesting dialogues that allow us as a community to to grow when it comes to mechanics, much as we did when, when Dark Souls first came out and, and just develop our appreciation for bosses and, and find new ways of tackling them. I think a lot of us veterans have come in with certain expectations and maybe taken a little longer to rewire this time. Um, any kind of closing comments from you guys or would you agree that's, that's more or less? Um, not to open up a, an entirely new topic, <laughs> but I think Lord Hunter hit on something right there. How um, the bosses having the character nature to them really highlights the fight, and yeah. I can't help you. Just you can't escape how the reuse of main bosses in the game really kind of diminishes that character feeling to an extent. Like for me, oh. it was the uh, the Godric rematch yeah. really yeah. kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I think I mentioned it to you guys in our our roundtable chat that we've got that the Loretta fight really bothers me. Um, it really yeah. rubs me the wrong way because she is the Halig Tree Knight and I argue in my Mikla video that her armor even mm. has an adornment reflective of Mikla so it yeah. annoys me that she's just there oh because once she was a carrion knight <laughs> okay yeah. and she's now I, I, I don't like that one I, I do agree with you Zio. The, the repetition annoyed me certainly on the first playthrough and that one particularly rubbed me the, the wrong way and I, I assume with you guys as well lower reason ones um, yeah. and repeated is actually the most egregious like the, the ulcerated tree spirit for example that appears about five six times whatever you know um it, it, that's a generic enemy but it's when it's you know like you say godfrey's um mm-hmm. spirit uh, godfrey uh, in the ever jail mm-hmm. uh, these types of things are, are irritating but um part of the issue with them um, from software kind of branching into the open world i guess is that their boss designs are I imagine quite labor-intensive, to be honest, every single one. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, and, and creating that many for the whole open world um, is difficult. But I think um, I think Joseph Anderson uh, uh, argues this, is that maybe sometimes you just didn't need the boss there. Um, you know, some yeah. of the dragons, probably not necessary. Um, I think there's like a couple of falling star beasts that, again, maybe probably <laughs> not necessary. Um, but I don't know. If, I, I think From Software did very well with their first open world. I was very concerned about this game, to be honest with you. I didn't engage any any of the kind of pre-build up hype because I was concerned. Um, but they definitely exceeded my expectations. So maybe in that way, you know, because I didn't have any, you know, not high hopes for it. Like, but I wasn't as hyped as everyone else. I was concerned. Um, so I was I've been pleasantly surprised by the experience for sure. But I think that that is one of the biggest negatives of them doing a an open world is their bosses are so intensive when it comes to the design. Um. But yeah, I'll, I'll move us on now because I could probably just keep us going on this subject forever. <laughs> uh, moving on. So we're going we're gonna to talk about the lore now because you know primarily all three of us are, are pretty interested in the lore. Um, and I've, I'll, by the time this podcast goes out, I will have released a video that I touch upon this particular lore point that we're talking about. But it's one that fascinated me. So the sword monuments are really interesting to me because mm-hmm. they kind of drop historical events and then you maybe don't get much else to them. 
And the one that interests me the most is one that you find in Landell. And it's one, I think, that's near the Altus Highway. And it reads, The first defence of Landell, a sovereign alliance, rots from within. Traces yet remain of a bloody conspiracy. So it mentions this sovereign alliance, and we don't hear that term ever again. That, that exact term, we never hear again. What are your thoughts on what this could mean? And in regards to the first defence of Leandale, what do you think about that? that? This is one that's been burning my brain up since <laughs> the game came out, and one that mm-hmm. you know, seeing, seeing this uh, outline, I was like, okay, I'm going to tackle it, I'm going to think about it some more. And, you know, I... I my my short answer is I'm not quite sure, but I will present the few things that Please. we do know about the first defense and things that are related, and it makes a very confusing picture, which is why I think it's such an interesting topic. It's juicy. It's juicy. Yeah. yeah. Go so for it. The other first so the first defense is like we this doesn't even tell us what the first defense is. And the yeah. only real information we get about it is in the uh ancient Dragon Knight Kristoff item description where um, it mentions after the first defense of Landell, Kristoff earned the hero's honor of Erdtree burial for the feat of capturing Godafroy the Grafted. So we have something with Godafroy, who seems, I would think, is my interpretation, is that he was doing some attacking of Landell, and right. that's what was being defended against. And then to add in something that I'm hesitant to include, but it connects in interestingly in the lead up to the release of the game. There was a Twitter post by the Elden Ring account, which had a picture of Stormvale, and the caption said, This contested legacy is said to protect the remnants of a betrayal that shattered the lands between. And this is the only other thing mm. that uses that language, and it connects to Stormvale, which connects probably to Godifroy, but it all goes back to Godric too, seemingly. And, he, you know, but the... But that's where I kind of like I'm like, Ugh, like if I didn't if I didn't know those bits, I would think that this had something to do with the Knight of Black Knives or the eventual stuff with Godwin because like, even and even still it's not totally absent because in in the uh, hero's grave where you get the ancient Dragonite Kristoff stuff, there's a black knife at the entrance to it, so there's still yep. some black yep. knives involved <laughs> and you fight. A Zamor hero, which doesn't really make any sense to me to this point. But um, (laughs) all that to say is, if I was going to put a wild theory out there, just a wild theory, and I don't, it only is the only one that connects it, but I don't know if it's satisfying, is that maybe Godric, in order to get, like, my theory is that Godric is younger than Godifroy, which is not confirmed by any means. But I, I always took Godfrey as being older than Godric and Godric being further down the line, as is mentioned. And yeah. I was wondering if Godric didn't betray Godfrey to get his great rune, basically. Or like to put himself in the position of running Stormvale and stuff. Like if he wasn't set if he didn't set up Godfrey, that's not super interesting though. Like to be honest, like of all the things, like I don't think it leads to any like big revelations. But that's my sort of out there theory. Yeah, it's it's tantalizing thinking that there was once an alliance of certain members of the uh, the Democrats. Yeah, that that yeah. that is a tantalizing bit of lore. Um, yeah, given we all we we only see them at each other's throats pretty much. Yeah, because yeah, that's really yeah. The the thing that confuses me about it is we have the thrones in Landell, 
mm-hmm. and we know who those correspond to mm-hmm. and they're they're set up as if it's some kind of like council yeah where right. they're discussing something so to me when i read this that's what i thought of but then we have things like godric fleeing landell to escape radon or the footage from the story trailer of Godric's soldiers attacking Landell, yeah. which he's also claiming as his home that he's so like desperately obsessed with. And so seeing Godric as like this cowardly character, why would he why would he have his full forces attack his home that he doesn't want desecrated? And I don't know, it, it's like <laughs> I think there's either some kind of big thing in the timeline that we don't know to connect all this because every time I try to think of like how the shattering happened, how all the demigods got dispersed like that, there's always some kind of wrench thrown in it. <laughs> yeah. the, what, what I would say is I, was, I, I assume the same, to be honest, that the thrones that are mentioned by Morgoth when he comes down were some kind of alliance initially some tenuous alliances. What what I assume that is again based on nothing apart from the fact that it is like a, a council. Why else would those thrones be there? Mm-hmm. And I I also like the lore hunter assume that Godefroy is the older um and it could be his soldiers that are in the trailer. Um because mm-hmm. they're of the same branch. It's kind of like Game of Thrones where they all they'll 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 share that kind of same heraldry. So it's possible that it was Godefroy's forces like the lore hunter suggests. What what interests me about it is that it, it creates an image of my mind is that the first defense is those six, I think it's six, um, uh, on the Sovereign Council with Morgoth, the Veiled Monarch. And this is just me speculating mm-hmm. and, and ruminating off of what I imagine. And they, they, they obviously defend against Godafroy or whatever, but at the same time, the alliance is crumbling. Mm-hmm. What else is interesting is the language used in this. So it says... The sovereign alliance rots from within. Traces yet remain of a bloody conspiracy. So the word the words "rot" and "blood" are used in there. Do you think there's any connection to to Moog or Melania possibly in this? Yes, I I I I like where you're going with it. I think I think yeah, that does help paint a picture for me where maybe this sovereign alliance rotting from within is so. Maybe the first defense of Landell was the first time that one of the demigods like broke bad and they attacked Landell. Mm-hmm. Or you know, they like attacked the other members, basically. You know, and, and regardless of if Godric is older or younger, he would have been part of that being associated with Godifroy. And you know, if Godifroy's his son or his grandfather, doesn't matter because he got captured. But that right. does tell us that it was coming from mm-hmm. Stormvale and it was you know the golden the golden lineage attacking Landell after being sort of ousted. How did and, yeah, yeah. Sort of, and traces yet remain of a bloody conspiracy. I want to throw out there what you guys think is: Do you think there was distrust among the demigods of why Godwin died? Because I don't think like Ronnie is not around to talk about it, and uh, Reichard is crazy, and he's not saying anything, <laughs> even though he probably knows some stuff. So. You know, and then America is gone, and they're sort of reeling from this event. And do you think that maybe part of this is like mentioning like the rot, 
bloody conspiracy because it's sort of saying like maybe these people didn't yeah. trust each other they thought the other ones like made this move and then godric yeah. attacked and all hell broke loose this is exactly what i imagine lore hunters that there's for whatever reason and i'll talk about some other kind of possibilities there's distrust and then it's all it all completely crumbles under the pressure of the the city also being attacked by by one or whoever um I, when I saw the, I, f- I feel like, I don't know about you guys, but when it's in Souls games, I feel like when they use certain words that they're trying to allude to something, like when they use the word bloody and rot there, I, mm. I thought that it might be that Moog in this period kidnaps Mikla mm. yeah. and it causes tension um, because Melania maybe doesn't know who's taken mm. uh, Mikla. That's just, uh, this is just me wildly speculating, you know, there's, there's no evidence for any of this, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I just think the choice interesting. Yeah, the thing that I, th- I definitely feel like has a part to play in this is the birth of the Omen Twins, mm-hmm. because I remember I can't remember the exact words of the tweet that was there long ago, but it it describes it as like a uh, an ill sign of the future of the royal family. Oh yeah. So maybe that was the event that stirred up distrust. I'm not entirely sure though. Yeah. Because I, there's no throne for no throne for Morgoth, and we see yeah. Morgoth place Godfrey's uh, crown on the big throne. So mm-hmm. I think at the time when there was a council, perhaps was during the rule of Godfrey. Well, I I always assumed much like um, Redatascor's most recent video that as the veiled monarch, Morgoth has ruled quietly for a long time, uh, with not necessarily everyone knowing. That Morgoth is necessarily uh, an omen, um, and he is the last king of Lindale, and it's called the Sovereign Alliance. So I'm not really sure if it's his alliance or not. Um, it is difficult to speculate on this. What we know though is Morgoth obviously was never a part of any of this, um, and he's a, he's one of the other shard bearers. It's just an interesting, juicy bit of lore, and I'm glad that you two picked up on it when you read <laughs> read it as well because it absolutely tantalised me. Um, and I hope we hear anything, something more in it. But is there anything else you wanted to add to that discussion? I just wanted to discuss your feelings on it. Um, but but uh, the the idea of the demigods being in some kind of alliance and then it all breaking down in some kind of Game of Thrones bloodbath is just uh, yeah, really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a part of the lore I'd like to... Uh, I wish we had a little bit more concrete information about. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, like my lingering thoughts and this may be a rabbit hole of sorts but like a big thing in the lead up to the game and i think even mentioned in the opening is that so two things that the that the great runes corrupted these people which is never really addressed in the game in a significant way to what zio is saying like we never really get like this is how they went crazy like that doesn't seem like it seems like bad things happened but it was all understandable what's the the term used in the intro with there's something strength I can't remember what it is. Painted power. Yeah. Yeah. It's something like that. That that always mm-hmm. uh, got me uh, right right from the first playthrough. That always kind of kind of sent yeah. shivers down my spine. Like you say, obviously it was what led to to them all going kind of mad, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's just interesting, like what factor did that have? And then the other question to you guys, which is like, I think it's a big one that we all is like, how did they get the shards? Like you know, like yeah. what, did they, what's, what's the science behind it? Do they just pick it up and did did they just appear yeah. because they're related to America? Like, what was what happened that 
gave them these great runes to begin with because i think um at least i know smo you've mentioned in videos that like i think as soon as america shattered the elden ring this was like the only time probably in history that the greater will immediately reacted and was like the elden beast was like okay time to like shoot you through with whatever that bolt thing is and i'm going to hang you up here because we cannot have this happening but like the damage Uh, had already kind of uh, been done and it kind of feels like when she shattered it that the great runes like escaped like i don't know like it's always been something i think it's intentionally sort of ambiguous but like like it says they inherited it but when did they inherit the great runes well yeah and like you say, the thing about a lot of the stuff in Elden Ring, and it's actually what I like about the game, is a lot of it is esoteric, and I don't think we're meant to understand it. It's one of those things where you're, as a human, much like yeah. Bloodborne, you, you aren't really going to fully comprehend the actual like understanding of what happens with the with the runes. Um, but but you're right, it is interesting to consider the 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 role in which the runes played in, in the all kind of um, ending up at each other's throats. And that part of the lore where there's I feel like there's maybe a pause when Marika disappears uh, yeah. after the shattering of the other ring. There's a lot bit of chaos. I like the idea that there's some kind of emergency sovereign council that tries to keep the peace and it all just crumbles. Yeah. Uh, and then we have the shattering. Very, very interesting piece of lore. And I'm glad they had that tiny line in on that sword <laughs> monument. It, it really got me. Um, but, uh, but I'll move on again. It's another subject we could ruminate on for ages. Um, <laughs> I, had, I had my questions in a different order, but I don't think it really matters if I switch it around just for the sake of continuity because we're talking about the shattering now so one of the interesting things to me is the the lands between themselves and the concept of you coming from beyond the fog and i'm going to combine two of our questions i set you at the beginning so there was also uh, an elden ring tweet from the official page and it tweeted something that said that you and um, when in regards to vary that he's ready to snuff out anyone who comes from the finger cradle which is where no the finger folk cradle apologies which is apparently where you come from then fairy is there to meet you so combining these two questions what are your thoughts on the location and geography of the lands between in relation to the outside world where does this exist and where where do we come from how do we end up in the lands between okay so i had something really interesting and i <laughs> it definitely contradicts um some things I've said in the past, because I think the idea that resonated with me the most about this exact topic came from a uh, Shadowversity, who I um, <laughs> made that video about. Yeah, and it's yeah. funny because his thing was like the fact that we're having to look at tweets to piece together the story, and um, but I think he had the best kind of uh, the best kind of realization about the idea of the lands between. He he tied it in with a play on Middle Earth. In Lord of the Rings, okay, and how that's sort of like a pocket dimension between all these different influences, and I think if we look at it from that perspective, it definitely makes, at least to an extent, a sort of sense, because we have all these like influences of outer gods touching the land, and the uh, obviously the geography and stuff isn't necessarily in line with like real physics, so. When I think about the idea of the Fingerfolk Cradle, it kind of seems like a purgatory to me for mm-hmm. the Tarnished. Because, obviously, all the Tarnished that are called to the uh, Lands Between by the guidance of Grace with the influence of the Fingers, mm-hmm. they're all dead. 
And so the first, the thing that kind of makes the most sense to me is that the finger fault cradle refers to the state of like purgatory. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll just say something now. I'll pass it on over to, to lore hunter is that beyond the fog has always just made me think of demon souls and the way <laughs> that Volataria exists. So Volataria is a physical kingdom. Yet when the scourge of the demons happens, my interpretation of it, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people share this as well, is that despite it being an actual physical place, when the fog overtakes Bulletaria, it also becomes its own pocket dimension. So it was its own place, but has now become a pocket dimension, and this is marked by the fog. That That's kind of my initial thoughts on it. I've got more to say, but I'll pass it over. With, with that in mind, I'll pass it over to, to the lore hunter to see what, what your thoughts are on on where we are in the world, basically. Sure, yeah, I, I agree with you that, like, from sort of has an internal, like, uh, symbolism they like to use, and they're relatively consistent when they reuse symbols, like, they like to touch on the same topics, which is something we'll get into <laughs> later, probably. But, um, so, like, you know, because we've had in Dark Souls 2, like, uh, crossing the sea and then in demon souls you have the fog and then you know in you know the various games they have these different barriers between the real world and wherever we are because you know like lordran was like unstuck from time it was all messed up mm -hmm. and i generally believe too that that's sort of how they design places and i always i saw the lands between always as like like a real fucked up like Mount Olympus or something in the sense that like you couldn't, it's a physical place, but you can't get there just because you want to go there. You have to like be called there to some degree. Like it's a place where the Elden Ring is and it's in this, like you're saying like sort of pocket dimension that exists outside reality. It's like Atlantis or something. You only get called there and you can't just get there if you try right. or you might stumble into it, but it's because it decided to swallow you or something. And so I think I'm I'm pretty in line with what you guys are saying. And I I think the way that the tarnished come there, like because you see the opening cutscene of all the graves, and you see yeah, your right. you see your character look towards this light, and then you're in the uh, chapel of anticipation. It does seem like you're being physically transported to the lands between upon death because you've been called, or I guess you don't even need to necessarily die. Sometimes the guidance of grace will call you outside of death but i think it's usually when you die that you get called and you just sort of end up there and you have it seems like people have memories but people are sort of just like like you know like sucked up and the one thing i'll say for the uh, finger folk cradle the thing that bothers me about that phrase is that it's very close to fringe folk and fringe folk is the grave right. that you come I, out of <laughs> uh -huh. i did want to, i when, when i was writing the questions first i was like am i just not reading this word correctly i was having that same thought yeah. process <laughs> so it, like who knows because like i've seen them make mistakes on tweets and they redo mm. it and um you know i like i know who runs that and they're very thorough but i'm also like man that almost feels like a weird like autocorrect yeah. situation but it's like that's never mentioned anywhere else <laughs> finger folk i you know, it's not so yeah. anywhere else in the game yeah um, so what what I would say is I, I agree with Zio in that that kind of grey holding area that you're in at the beginning, whether or not it's fingerful crate or not, it does seem to be a purgatory before they push you through into the the lands between. At the beginning of Demon Souls, 
you're just kind of walking towards Boletaria, mm. but then you get pulled through a, a portal in the fog yeah. to come to Boletaria. And I think it's something along those lines. And again, it's a physical place, but it's now its own pocket yeah. dimension, is what yeah. I would say. Um, so, because we, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay, so something I made a video on a long time ago before we uh, ever got the game, and I've been meaning to touch on, is how similar the lands between is to uh, Tirnanog in Celtic mythology, even like the means of getting there. So Tirnanog, it's like kind of like a Mount Olympus, like Lore Hunter was saying, to where it's like the land of the gods, and uh, death is very different than the real world. And you access it by crossing a sea of fog. And one of the means of crossing that sea of fog is on a spirit horse or on a boat that is uh, under the influence of gods, which we see lots of boats around uh, the lens between. And I think if we kind of look at it from that lens, the other lands can exist too, like the Badlands or the Land of Reeds that are described. Of those right. being like places where the uh, the influence of these gods isn't happening so yeah and so i think it definitely allows for all the possibilities if we look at it from like the way you were saying how it's um a pocket dimension within a physical world mm -hmm. no I, t I totally agree and like like lore hunter says just met, you mentioned other countries and things it, it, they do use the same tropes quite often from soft despite the fact there's a lot of you know there's some different story beats and, and grander themes but in dark souls for example we hear mention of all these different countries like astora and balder and things like that and the these places exist outside of lordran but the impression is that you get is that these places functionally are still normal despite you know there's the curse of the undead um, but when you come to Lordran, no matter where you're from in the world, you are pulled into this timeless, messed up, dislodged place. And I feel like the lands between is just uh, the new Lordran. And we have, you know, places like the 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 land of the Reeds uh, and all these. There's a few other countries that are mentioned um, that are that are that are normal. But it, it's good to see that we're all in the kind of agreement of that because it is a difficult concept to initially kind of grasp where you are, and you might not actually think about it a lot. Uh, but when I saw this tweet, I did start thinking about uh, you know, and analyzing the beginning. And as you said, Zio and, and Lore Hunter is when it talks about the tarnished at the beginning and it lists off all the characters, they're all dead in the yeah. opening cinematic, okay. right? They're all dead. Uh, Gideon Ophir is in a tomb. Uh, Horror Lewis who must be impaled on a tree. Um, the dung eaters being hung. Um, so you're right. It, it is as if the tarnished are, are those who have died but are in the pocket, so to speak, uh, ready to be reactivated uh, by grace uh, and then pulled into the lands between. Uh, and whether or not you are still dead uh, in a material world is, is quite a difficult question to answer, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's fine. Good, we're all in agreement on that. So the next question I had, and I think the one after this is most difficult, so I'll just <laughs> go for this relatively easy one. This is an opinion question. Which ending do you think is the best, and why? And we're talking obviously lore reasons, not necessarily uh, the way the way that you get there or the playstyle. Just something that you find the most satisfying story wise. Uh, I think for me, the uh, I think Ronnie's my girl, and uh, <laughs> I just like the Ronnie ending because, like, I don't really trust the Dark Moon or whatever the hell is going on there either. But like, 
the greater will is a problem. Like the outer gods are generally a problem, but Ronnie, like I like this idea of pulling like, so with the golden order, you have the Erd tree sitting right there. The souls return to the Erd tree. It's all very like, you know, she says like, it's all like they're trapped there. Yeah. Whereas like, she's going to pull the order out into space and it's going to let people like live their lives and it's not going to be so heavy on people and so i'm just like i like that and then i sort of like just if you're thinking about the ending for your character like they're kind of drifting out in space i don't quite understand what's like literally happening but it seems like at least it's kind of a fun adventure whereas some of the other endings like like i got uh the uh lord of frenzied flame my first ending because i uh, wanted to save I wanted to save Melina and it sort of backfired. I did, you know, it's sort of like the first time I played Demon Souls, I was like, okay, let's burn it all down. Cause generally I'm like, these worlds are so bad. Let's just start over. And I thought Lord of Frenzied Flame was kind of like that, but I think the Ronnie ending is more like starting over. Lord of Frenzied Flame is more like, let's erase like, reality. Turn it all, yeah. Turn it all into primordial suit. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think the Ronnie one is sort of my like, it seems at least slightly hopeful. There's some other ones that are kind of nice too, but I think if the greater will is still in place, I an issue. I don't like the greater will too much. It, they're not, they're not it, the best. It's satisfying. in Rani's one as well, though, because there's so many steps in her quest and a lot of mm. great characters involved. And um, so I do think it's a satisfying one, but I'll, I'll get to my favorite one after Zio. If you, you obviously let us know what your favorite is. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm on the same train of thought. I think Ronnie's is obviously the most positive. And the thing that comes to mind when I think about it too is uh, the idea of the blight spreading across the lands between. And when I looked at this question, I was kind of thinking, okay, which ending would get rid of that blight to where the inhabitants can have a sort of sanity about them? And I was kind of thinking maybe that's the effect of the tainted power of the great runes and their influence. And so with Ronnie's ending... It, I mean, that definitely does seem like the one that would create the best future. But I have like, <laughs> I have like four different questions that could go completely off topic about this subject <laughs> that I won't, I won't say right now. But um, yeah, that's that's where my thought process with it is. But as far as like, um, just gameplay wise, it also it it speaks volumes that more people completed that ending. Than the base ending and Elden Lord, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's a really well constructed ending. My my first ending, when I always do a Souls game, I always just try to do a, a basic ending first of all. So I light the flame or or whatever. So my first playthrough, I did do an Elden Lord one, but I did the Duskborn one, which is where you incorporate the Rune of Death, and I have a lot of sympathy for this one because I feel like. I, I do feel great sympathy towards those who live in death uh, and fears group of people. Um, so I do like that ending a lot. My favorite ending would be one where Mikla, uh becomes the new god and yeah. uh, erases the influence of the outer gods. That'd be great. Uh, I also like um, the Golden Order Perfected, the gold mask one, because I think the ideologies in that are pretty similar to Mikla's in that there's some good principles within the Golden Order, but the problem's the gods that are involved in the Golden Order. So I, I like I like that one. I like the Gold Mask one. But 
I think the best undeniably is Rani's one because of the effort that goes into it and it feels like a complete quest rather than you just turning up at the end. And yeah. as you said, Lore Hunter, there's there's some hope there. She, she One of her criticisms, and she doesn't say it directly, but one of her criticisms is that the gods of this golden order and of the, the Elden um, dynasty, they're too involved. They're, they're mm. too... They walk among the mortals essentially. They're too they're too affecting on the land. Whereas for her, it's kind of as you say, she wants to just recede from. She'll she will be the order, but she'll recede from the actual earth and let people live their lives. And I think that is what's good about it. And given the way that the world is, I think Rani's one is is the best option. Although I can't help but say that the the flame of <laughs> the the frenzied flame one is also quite appealing sometimes when uh, you've had a bad you've had a bad day at work. It's certainly a Certainly an interesting one. Okay, so we're kind of moving on to the kind of final kind of parts of the discussion that I want to talk about. This one is a difficult topic, though, so um, I'll try and keep my my a bit more concise in this one. But one of the interesting parts of the game for me is Faramazula, um, and how it operates within the world, and what its relationship is to the people and enemies that we find there, such as the dragon, the beastmen, and the exiled knights. And of course, we find um, Malekith himself there. So, what is your understanding of Faramazula as a whole, uh, and the peoples and beings that we find there? I have a few thoughts about it. So, obviously, it's the home of the dragons and the beastmen. And one of the things, whenever I made my video with Arid and we scoured Limgrave, yeah. is that the ruins of Faramazula are very native to Limgrave, and I really see it as once residing atop the hill where Stormvale now is because of the uh, there's a painting you can find in Stormvale that has the uh, the vista of the cliff and it has the divine tower but there's no Erd tree and there's no Stormvale castle and so when we look at the uh, the idea of the storm and the uh, the great storm it describes it as once being uh well it describes it as the age before the Erd tree and a time when the the winds rage like no other. So I kind of think that if if Arumazula did exist there, then it was on that hill. And the uh, perhaps the uh, the demi humans that we find in Limgrave are like the uh, the very diluted ancestors of the uh, the beastmen in Arumazula. So that's kind of my thought process about it. I'd like to hear how y'all can maybe uh tie that in so i'll I'll let lore hunter go first but um i did have a difficult time wrapping my head around farmazil in general which is why i have to be honest wanted your guys thoughts on it because i the, the point of this podcast for me as well is that some of these are are difficult concepts for for me to understand as well so it's good really getting kind of hashing it out with you guys as well so i'll let lore hunter go first and I'll, I'll kind of i'll let you know what my my kind of general impression of the of the place is yeah, and I, so I, I sort of agree with you, Smotown, in that some of the details are difficult for me. And I think what Zio mm -hmm. brought up about being at Limgrave and how that connects into the idea of the storm that's in Stormvale, like, that all makes a lot of sense to me and is uh, really interesting to where it currently is, which, you know, my I also kind of put it in, like, a weird pocket dimension place. Like, we know time stops in the Great Storm, so there's obviously some pocket dimension shenanigans going on within fair missoula but the place is so surreal one thing i'm curious and i guess this is doing less answering and more throwing out more questions but 
I think maybe it could be related to some of the trouble conceptualizing it is I find that how you get to fair Missoula to be strange. Like the fact that it's like after you light the fire and you're sort of just like you end up there. And that's always been something that like, it's one of these things where it's weird, but it feels very intentional. And I'm trying to figure out what from software is saying or conveying by having you end up there in that way. Or if it's like, well, we can't do a coffin for like a fourth time, so we have to figure <laughs> out some other way. So it's it's one of those things where I have trouble sort of understanding why you end up there, like unless you're just like blown off the mountain, which seems a little silly to me. Like it just I have a I you know, I'm curious if you guys have any better thoughts on it, but like it feels like it's more um symbolic and it's supposed yeah. to be taken in this metaphysical way. So that's why I I keep going back to like, oh well, you know the flame's been lit, and you were yeah, trans. Yeah, you're transported there because that's where Malaketh is, and that's where you need to be to complete. So, it. I, have so a, if- I have a theory about that. Okay. So with Melina, we know that she is a. Okay, this 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 goes very very much. It can lead off topic, but I'll keep it short. So with Melina's like final words, she describes it as those that walk walk alongside flame. May uh will one day meet the road of destined death, mm. and with her being the uh, the kindling maiden having the power of the fire and everything, one of the points I, I was thinking about when talking about the the very speculative possibility that she may be the glomide queen is that her true power resides in the uh in the sealed away rune of death. And so in that last-ditch effort of her sacrificing herself, she teleports or transports us closer to her form, which would well, be that room. A, you think there's a connection? And we, we like quite literally follow the road through destined death, being that rune. My only counter to that would be is when you're the Lord of Frenzied Flame, is you don't have Melina. And I don't know if you've seen the scene... Zyostorm, mm-hmm. where you've been the Lord of Frenzy Flame, the way it happens is you're up there by yourself and you just hear it's quite a disturbing kind of I'd say a, sh- a crying noise almost build, it builds up into a crescendo mm-hmm. uh, and, then the f- and then the fire is lit inside the brazier and you fall in and then you're mm-hmm. there uh, Yeah, it's a, it's a very that's loose theory to, that's, a, that's, that's, that's difficult to explain Um. But I think you're on the right track in that because we're walking the path of Lord, there's some metaphysical power that connects us to Fire Missoula, and it's like the destiny of a Lord. I think that, like Lore Hunter says, we can't just do another coffin that slides off the mountain mm-hmm. and floats to Fire Missoula. Sure. But you know, there's some there's some facet of destiny there. Destiny is within Elden Ring, and there is just obviously some kind of connection that brings us there. Um, but my my understanding of Farmazilla, and one of the most interesting things about it to me, is so we find we find Malekith there, okay, and we find Beastman there. So, what do you guys think about Malekith's relation to Farmazilla? Why is he there? I could pose another question that may yeah. tie into that. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> So 
why does Mikola's needle only work in yes. that kind of area beyond time? Why is that the only spot in the game where you can bypass the influence of the outer gods? And that may kind of tie into a possibility about Malekith. Mm. So do you think that he, he's there out of time? I'm not... I wouldn't necessarily go that far because the uh, the tra- the way you access the fight with Malekith is very much different than uh, Placidusax, but I'm just... I really don't have a clear answer for that. So... Yeah. One thing that I would say about the Malika thing is his people, if you like to call it that, are related to the dragon somehow. And it's difficult for me to put, put a finger on it. But the blade that he wears when he's the beast cleric, you know, the short kind of dagger, you can find that weapon in the game. And I can't remember exactly what it's called. And I'll, I'll show it on screen for the for the audience now. But it says something along the lines of this weapon is given to the high clerics of Faramazula. So Malekith is a high priest of Faramazula. And the beastmen seem to be serving the dragons, right? Yeah. Because. I thought they were here first of all because I th- the thing the impression I first got of Farmazil when I came here I was like oh well this is a place for exiles everyone who hasn't got a place in the real world comes here that's why you know I saw the banished knights and I just made that huge leap and it's, that's not correct at all because the Azula Beastman Ashes uh, reads this spirits of beastmen from doomed Farmazula the slowly crumbling ruins in the sky these ruins are said to be the remains of a giant mausoleum enshrining an ancient dragon. Guarded by chosen beastmen who wield weapons clad in lightning. So there is a connection to the beastmen and the dragons, and you, that's fine. You, you can accept the fact that the beastmen serve the dragons, whatever. But my question is why is Malekith a, a cleric of Farmazilla? Do you have any thoughts on that at all? That, that's I really tough. don't. Yeah, that's tough because, you know, and uh, to sort of echo Zio, I'm going to pose another question which i think sort of gets at my thought processes like malekith is america's shadow and like we i don't quite un- like we know that um you know like uh oh, where is it there's a line somewhere that does mention like Blythe as you know like you know the half brother and you know sort yeah. of like implying that he was born because you know she was chosen and so it it feels like Malekith was born because America was chosen. So then for him to also serve this role as a high cleric feels like it's hard to establish a timeline there because wouldn't he be overseeing like America would have yeah. sent him there? Like it's it's sort of um it is really hard to sort through because it, of reasons it's like really that. It's really difficult. It, it's really difficult. What I would say is that I mean, I'm sure we're all, you know, aware that the dragons did have some role in the prior order of the Elden Order because Placidus Axe is actually referred as Elden Lord, right? Yep. So I see it that these are still also creations of the Greater Will, and this is the only mm-hmm. way that I can satisfy it. I yeah. have actually found found the item, the, the knife while while we were talking there. 
and it's called a uh, Cinquedea. I don't know if that's the correct way to pronounce it, but that's the, the stone knife that Malekith had. And it, it essentially says, short sword given to high-ranking clergymen of Farmazula. And then it also says, just to really make it even more difficult, the design celebrates a beast's five fingers, symbolic of the intelligence once granted upon their time, upon their kind. So it's it's <laughs> lumping in Malekith, or it might not be. Um, it might be that he has just become a clergyman and he's not an, he's an unusual clergyman, but it's essentially lumping him in with the other beastmen, right? Is that that's what I get from that, and that they were granted their intelligence. Yeah, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to comprehend. Garong was separate. Garong existed before Malekith became the. Uh, well, this is the question. The isn't it? Does it yeah. does this mean that Malekith actually existed prior to becoming Marcus Shadow? I always had the impression that they were created. Yeah, as a shadow. Or, yeah, and it doesn't really work too when we think about how Garong was sort of a uh, sort of a a character that would keep the demigods in check. So that would imply he definitely definitely still had the form of Garong afterwards after becoming the shadow, which I mean obviously because he's in the game. But Yeah. I'm just kinda of spitting out my thoughts here. Well and yeah. I, I, there's I who I think um one of the a, a channel I can't remember exactly who it was, but again I'll, I'll I'll link it on the screen for the viewers. Someone showed that there is actually alternative dialogue uh, from Malekith if you complete Garank's quest. Were you too aware of that? Showing yes. that that yep. they are they are they are definitively definitively linked. Yeah. Um, the the way I reconcile this and it is it's really difficult to re- this is a difficult subject for Amazula and the Beastmen and throwing Malekith mm-hmm. in there as well as make it very, very difficult. As I see it as this is the best way I can reconcile it. After Death and Death was stolen that one time, I feel like Malekith went himself, or maybe instructed by Marka, into exile to Fire Missoula to protect Death and Death. I think there's nowhere else in the whole world that is more difficult to reach than Fire Missoula. And then he became a beast clergyman. That is my mm. best yeah. guess at reconciling that bit of that really. Oh, that would make a lot of sense. That's, yeah, like, that is my, yeah. and he's just he's in there, laying low, even when he's gigantic as just a beast clergyman, who's mm. there unassuming. Um, that is my best understanding of that. Um, like we say, you know, we know that that the dragons are still linked to the to the Elden Lord, so it's to the to the Elden Order, so it's not difficult to imagine that Malekith and Marika would know about this this place, Farmazula. That would yeah. also kind of make sense with Mikola's Needle because, I mean, obviously the Greater Will didn't like the fact that death was stolen, right. and the location being the one place that they can't reach, that would make a, uh, definitely make a good spot for it. Well, here's another, now that I'm thinking about it, here's another reason why it might work beyond time. When we lie down and we face Placidious Acts, time kind of rewinds. Yep. Because Farmazula's crumbled, and when we lie down, it rebuilds, and we find ourselves in his... Is it not that Mikla's Needle is taking advantage of that time manipulation and rewinding time in the person's body to the point mm. where they didn't have the mm. influence of the Ertergod? That is 
my guess on it, just having a think about it now, that some kind of time manipulation is what I would guess. And you're resetting your body to a point before that you had the influence there to God. Yeah, I think that makes some sense. And also, um, you know, Placidius Axe is like kind of the closest we get to, like, I mean, he's an Elden Lord and he doesn't possess that same power anymore, but I assume like it's a special place and the frenzied flame and the greater will don't get along. Like they kind of like, <laughs> you know, their relationship is another, you know, not worth going into yeah. right they now. Don't, because, they don't speak. They don't speak anymore. No. But you know, the three fingers and the two fingers, you know, there's obviously similarities, but we know Thank the frenzy, the frenzy flame, like it, it wants that return. It wants that convergence, which isn't actually completely out of line with what the golden order suggests it's just a really drastic version of it and um so there are similarities between them but there is the the idea that if the greater will was the outer god for the dragons which i also agree was the case that the greater will doesn't want the frenzied flame to take over either it's it's not like because my general stance is that the outer gods are kind of jostling for control of the lands between in the Elden Ring. Like that's why we see different endings where different outer gods gain control or the upper hand. I don't know if it's a really like 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 who knows why they do it. I don't know if it's like really mean or if they're just playing a little game and it's for fun. Game of Thrones it's like Game of Thrones for them. Yeah. (laughs) So but yeah and the one thing I want to throw at you guys which is rude to do in the situation where that's already so complicated (laughs) is People have brought up the fact that if you kill Malekith, uh, Grank is still at the Beast Sanctum. <laughs> and so what, what's that all about? Like, I, it's, it's weird for it. Yeah. Like, it seems like a gameplay concession on one hand, but From Software is smarter than that. And maybe not in this case. Maybe they're just like, uh, we don't want to cut that off for Well, players. he's not the only one. Yeah. So, so I killed... My first time doing Ronnie's quest, when she talked about the Baleful Shadows, I had accidentally attacked Blythe, and then mm-hmm. he, he spouts out a line about how, why am I Bale to Ronnie? And so I was like, okay, well, I got to kill him to progress the quest. So I killed him. And then after I progressed Ronnie's quest, he still spawned at the, uh, <laughs> at the tower after he'd gone insane. So it definitely feels like a... That's the quality of life thing. That is a glitch, yeah. Uh, The Grank thing, I I guess it is a bit of both, to be honest, the Lore Hunter, that that is just a gameplay concession. But also, they can just say it's the Dark Souls thing, right? Because it's times involved in just last time. (laughs) That's what I was sort of wondering. Like, do we (laughs) we throw them that bone of like, oh, well, you know, if Fair Missoula is this weird place kind of out of time, potentially, that Grank can exist in two places at once and that, like... It that's very like I feel like if that's the case, even at best, I would consider that a little sloppy. I wish there was something, but I also know that Elden Ring, compared to any other Souls game, really doesn't want you to lose out on like NPCs. So it, it is slow. It is strange though, considering they would go to the effort of including alternate dialogue for Malakith. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. then not kill him off. It's that's more effort than killing him off. Um, yeah. So I don't understand it. It's definitely just a gameplay concession. They can just shrug their shoulders and say that time. Um, yeah. But I I find Farmazilla really interesting, and I do in future want to do a full lore video on it. And thanks for 
hashing out those ones for me. That thing about Malchith was wrecking my head. Um, mm-hmm. But just talking to you about it, I think the best way I can describe it, I always got the impression about Farmazula that it was a, a hideaway. Uh, yeah. It's a place where people can hide. And I feel like he is just hiding hiding there. Where better to to hide the, the rune of death, you know? Um, yeah. So that that would mm-hmm. that would be, be my my thoughts on him. Yeah. And I think he's just a beast clergyman because he's been he's not Malekith anymore. He's trying to hide the fact he's Malekith. Um and he obviously, you know, in the middle of his fight with us, he does obviously just resume his full kind of original regal form, which is what he probably was before he went in hiding. Mm-hmm. Because you know we're assuming that he wasn't. He was more kind of present prior to this. Um, yeah, yes. I definitely think you're on the right track there. Yeah, I, now that I think about it, it actually does make sense. But it was wrecking my head earlier. So thank you for, <laughs> thank you for yeah. anything to do with time is very difficult in Dark Souls games um, <laughs> and Elden Ring games, obviously. The Elden um, Ring timeline as a whole is very, very confusing. <laughs> yeah, lining up all the ages and the wars. <laughs> yeah. So, I, it was difficult, and and my first lore video for 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 Elden Ring was talking about the the Godskins and their role in history, and it's difficult even placing, uh, you know, trying to organize them. Although it did working out for that video did help me kind of work out some parts of the timeline. But yeah. but yeah, Farmersville is certainly an interesting place. Um, but but we'll move on to the last question because I've I've really kind of pushed us out in some of the questions. But this one's the one that kind of maybe interests me the most of the podcast. And I'm really interested to hear your guys' thoughts on it. And it's, how do you feel the broad themes of Elden Ring compare with those of other FromSoft titles? What big themes does it tackle, and how do they differ, if they do, from previous FromSoftware titles? Uh, Zayo, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I've made a few videos now talking about the one theme that kind of encapsulates all of the Souls games that I think Elden Ring does a uh, a much better job at, and that's like the theme of delayed gratification where your reward is equal to the effort involved and so like by making the game hard and by making the bosses more uh like have a lot of skill jumps in elden ring it um it really stretches out that feeling of having of the game kind of coming out of the screen and making you as a person like really pressed for this goal and with like having an open world and being able to go to other places and level up and then come back to get that reward, adding that extra layer of effort, the whole theme of like um, of finding beauty in the struggle and having the uh, the hard parts of the journey be the thing that makes the journey itself so enjoyable in the end, I think Elden Ring really expands on that much more so than Dark Souls where a lot of times you just run flat up against a wall and give up. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I'd say is that say I know Sekiro is your favorite game and Sekiro in, my, in some ways is my favorite in that the the final boss of the game in Sekiro, I feel is one of the best culminations of all the skills you've learned in the game mm-hmm. um, when you face the Sword Saint. And when I beat the Sword Saint for the first time, I was, I, I think I shouted. It was, it was an amazing moment because it is a skill-based uh, final fight, uh, but I'd agree with the delayed gratification. Have you got any thoughts on on what the grand themes of the plot are uh, in regards to the grand kind of story beats of of Elden Ring and and how they compare to maybe some of the other titles? Yeah, I think Elden Ring is a much more it tells a much more personal story 
from the characters that we see involved. And that was the thing, like with the Souls games, I did the NPC quest, but aside from maybe Zygmire and Solaire, I didn't really feel like a, I could very much um, understand their personal ambitions through their quest, uh, with those two being the main exceptions. But I yeah. feel like every time I've done a quest in Elden Ring, it's been, I can kind of get a feel for their their emotions and their thought processes and their ambitions and the uh the way their quest play out being directly tied through those ambitions but they definitely hit a lot harder yeah i agree i i i put a post up of this on, on my channel the other day and i i think that one of my favorite things about Elden ring is the npc quests and uh selin's quest in particular for me was a really good one i really uh really enjoyed the the twist at the end of her her quest and her motivations and how, despite the fact she's actually one of the nicest characters towards us, she actually has quite a quite a dark history. Um, but at the same time, is also a really, really empathetic character. Uh, really enjoy the NPC quest. Um, Lore Hunter, what are your kind of general impressions of the the grand themes of the of the game and how they compare to previous games? Yeah, so I mean, the first thing that jumps to my mind and one that from software seems interested in and is something that. I personally find interesting to watch them explore and to uh, think about is, you know, sort of the obvious concepts of the idea of power corrupting and the ideas of power structures being, you know, um, detrimental to those who are underneath those powers and just sort of that whole process of like what people will do to transcend or overcome where they are. And I think with Elden Ring, something that's interesting is I think. I think Elden Ring is a lot more positive in some ways than Dark Souls and um, definitely more positive than Demon Souls and I think even Bloodborne where there's, there is that same thing of these power structures are corrupting, but then you get these moments of like, these moments of real like beauty where there's more NPC questlines, for instance, that end on kind of a positive note and like, like, and they can end badly, but you can have like Roderica and Bach where you feel like yeah. they actually go through this character arc. And in Dark Souls, like, Sigmire ends up dying. Like, Solaire ends up dying because they're pursuing their things. And they're, they're relatable characters. Like, Lucatiel, she's not able to overcome that's the a curse. Tough quest. Yeah. Yeah. And a, those yeah, are like kind one. of depressing. Whereas, like, Elden Ring will still give you plenty of that. But uh, Miyazaki had a quote about um, going into Elden Ring where he talked about, like, uh, like a jewel, like jewels or beauty. And if there's like beauty or jewels everywhere, it's not worth much. But if you find a jewel in the mud, like it's worth much more. And I think in Elden Ring, their general approach to beauty is a bit different than we've seen before. And I just really enjoy that more. I think the game is such a scope that they can have a sort of new, more nuanced conversation, even with the different like demigods and stuff because there are all these people pursuing power for different reasons and they all have different goals and you just get things that i don't think you got as much of where like i don't think like like everybody loves radon and it's for good reason because radon has dimension beyond being a big mighty warrior who really looked up to godfrey and mm -hmm. his and his dad and he was just like this really positive guy but who's also a warrior and a conqueror who 
probably, you know, he did some bad stuff too, most likely because that's, mm -hmm. he's a big warrior and conqueror, but he has dimensions like with his horse Leonard and learning magic. Like yeah. I just feel like there's so much going on there where they feel fleshed out. And there's sort of, I think one of the things it's getting at is whereas like in dark souls, like Gwyn was sort of the end of the road and they were all sort of, um, at the whim of this larger, uh, like natural progression of the age of mm -hmm. fire and these like things that are just like so esoteric, like beyond right. people, but not really relatable. Whereas once I realized that the outer gods were at play, first of all, I'm a very big, like Lovecraft fan. So when they mentioned yeah. outer gods, I was like, you're excited. <laughs> I, yeah. Like I love bloodborne, but I actually think yeah. the outer gods in Elden ring are more like outer gods in Lovecraft's works where they're just very strange and out there and you never come in contact with them. And, and incomprehensible. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. all have envoys and vassals and you don't know what's going on, but I think it also allowed the story of Elden ring to then like, give dimension to these demigods because they're they do some bad stuff and like merica is a very complicated character way more complicated than Gwyn, i would argue and not that that's like a total like good thing because it also makes it really hard to understand merica and why she does what she does at points but it's just these are people too and they feel yeah. more like people and it's sort of it lets there be this other layer of like manipulation going on. That's like not just a natural force, but these like alien forces that just like, I think it brings them closer. Like, like Zio saying, it's like, feels more personal. Like everyone has a story and mm -hmm. they're, they're It's less like black and white. Like I, before the game came out and we saw stuff about Godric and how talkative he was, it really got me thinking like, how cool would it have been to actually hear from like Seath the Scaleless? Like as much as he's yeah, talked up, he's in such war, a character. He never says a word. To us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've always regret. I've always regretted that. Yeah, yeah. When you finally see him, he's just this big dragon that tries to like swipe you with his butt, like slap you about while you try to cut yeah. a sword out of its tail. Yeah, it's tough. Everyone yeah, else gets their lines, and like you know, like I like how in the game too, like even Radon, like who doesn't get to have his moment. They give him this whole cutscene and procession to sort of explain his character. And it sort of even hits harder for me this tragedy of like, we don't get to meet Radon. We don't get to know his character. And it's kind of sad because he seems like he may have been a cool guy, but like he's been eaten from the inside. So, like, whatever yeah. he had left is like, you feel that tragedy a little bit more about his character than I did for a lot of other like, like Dark Souls stuff. Yeah. 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 I think. I think you're right, and I think that in general, um, that this is the least dark FromSoft game of all time, in my opinion. Dark Souls, the uh, Demon Souls, is just so bleak. Um, it is very bleak. <laughs> I, it's extremely. I'd say it's the darkest one. Yeah. Um, even more so than Bloodborne. It's I extremely, so. extremely dark. Demon Souls. Um, I, and Dark Souls is is dark, but it's more. It's a kind of sense of inevitability in Dark Souls that you're fighting against a cycle. And you're just buying time, no matter what you do, and that's essentially what Aldia says in Dark Souls too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that that's the beauty of Dark Souls. But in this game, it's like you say, it's it, it's a more heroic. It's it's the most heroic FromSoft chapter. I'm pretty sure that was quoted at some yeah. point in the in the media. Um, but it, it certainly is. And and one of my favorite things is, and I think someone said this on Reddit, is that I think that maybe some of the grander scale plots, um are more opaque in Elden Ring than they are maybe in Dark Souls. Like in Dark Souls, you understand 
the broad streaks of the game uh, mm-hmm. about the dark and and the light but some of the details are missing whereas i feel like in elden ring a lot of the big picture stuff is very esoteric and we're not meant to understand it but a lot of the details about mm-hmm. the characters are yeah. very well done <laughs> is what i would say so it's the opposite in that respect and and in that way it's better one of my favorite characters in the game is radigan because radigan's influence before you and it was i was delighted to fight him at the end because i didn't know <laughs> yeah who I was going to fight. I didn't know who I was going to fight at the end. Um, I actually thought it would just be Marika that I'd fight. Um, but Radigan is this great is this great hero. You know, you hear about him so many times throughout the game, um, as much as Godfrey. Him and Godfrey are the two heroes you hear most about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Radigan's just an extremely fascinating character um, yeah. who, who evidently has his flaws. And, and you maybe see him in an egg flight because of the, the fundamentalism that he's attached to. Uh, he's essentially the leader of the current order, Radigan, in a way. Um, but he, he's the opposite of what you're saying, Lord Hunter. I like I love the dialogue stuff all the all the the bosses have, but I think it's right that with Radigan, who is the mm-hmm. greatest one, essentially the greatest hero um, that we hear about, by the end is nothing more than a husk. It's a chilling fight. You you, you hear about Radigan through all these bits, and you imagine he's quite he's a quite a charismatic, beautiful uh, leader. People, you know, someone people would want to follow. Yeah, by the end he says hollowed out husk. That's probably this is probably that's probably the darkest moment in Elden Ring is seeing Radigan with his half half his face missing and he's essentially just a a shell for the Elden Ring. Uh, I, I really love that moment. Yeah. Um. But but what I think is is good about Elden Ring is you do get tired of the bleakness of Dark Souls and stuff and and having all these great heroes and villains, it's more classical in a way. And you know you have you have the likes of Moog who's an eccentric uh, bad guy kidnapping Mikla, just like a mustache twirling bad guy. Um, he, he's just fantastic. Moog is just, uh, you know, I did my, my, my really long lore video on him because I just find him such a, a fascinating character. And that's the thing I think that we get more of in Elden Ring than we do in Dark Souls is the psychology of characters. Yeah. And I don't know if you'd agree. That mm-hmm. is something we didn't really get a huge amount of in the other Souls game, but you, you get impressions of people like um, mm-hmm. Godric. You tackled this in your videos, I storm. Um, he he has a complex because he's trying to live up to the Golden Order, and he simply doesn't. Yeah. It's an inferiority complex. Yeah, you know? that's exactly what <laughs> yeah, I was trying right. to say. Yeah, it's like exactly. We really get a, a reach into the psychology of the bosses and like every character that we meet, and that's something I've really loved about Elden Ring. Me too, and and I think you know I'm. I always I can't let go of Dark Souls being my favorite game, but honestly, because of the story, you know, of course we, you know, there's issues with Elden Ring, of course there is, but the story elements are so enthralling that I just love it so much. And like you say, Zylestorm, like it's it, the characters that we get a look at are are so good. And the lore hunter talked about it, I think, in his podcast with Raticast, or I can't remember. Um, but you you really like the dialogue and stuff for the bosses, and the best. One of the best bosses for this is is Margit slash Margot. Mm-hmm. Do you not feel like you just get such a complete picture of that character? Yeah, because of all of his dialogues that he speaks of when you when you meet him the three times throughout the game, and he's yeah. just such a fascinating, just a fascinating character. So yeah. the thing I think that, that Elden Ring does better is the personal stories are there, and the broad strokes are more esoteric. It's a inversion of Dark Souls, and it actually works works and works better to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, with that in mind, just to just to finish up the the podcast, what who is your favorite character 
uh, and, and just give a, a, a reason why. That's so tough. <laughs> yeah, so many, so many. For me, if I just had to pick from the demigods, and it, it may just be because he's the one I've looked into the most. Honestly, it's probably Godric. I think just the way you can really see his full thought process behind it, even just that line about the dragons, it mm -hmm. speaks so much of like his jealousy and like how he wants to, he really wants to be the, the golden child, but he knows he never can be no matter what he does. Everything he does seems to be the wrong move in the eyes of the public and in the eyes of his ancestors. And so it's just like, it's so fascinating to fight him and then see like the mind struggle going on throughout the fight. And even, yeah. even I made the video about the music, even the music like really speaks to it. And so just having an understanding of all those layers, while his story might seem like the most, um, the most surface level of, of the, all the demigods, that aspect I just appreciated so much. No, I totally agree. That when, since I watched your video on it, I did appreciate him more. Uh, and Lore Hunter's also also done a video on him. I, I wasn't going to, but you two have obviously covered them both in, in pretty <laughs> great detail. Uh, and what I would say is, he's again what I was mentioning earlier. Psych psychologically, yeah. he's one of the most interesting characters for sure. Even mm -hmm. when he grafts the dragon's arm, all he's concerned about is his ancestors. Does he not say ancestors bear witness? Yeah. And even when he kills you, uh, he says with with the dragon arm i think it is he says a yeah. uh, godfrey did thou witness so he's just obsessed uh, it's, so obsessed. Sad, yeah. it's so good just little touches like that yeah. it's, it's lovely yeah it's lovely and um, so who would you say is your favorite character lord hunter i'm sure there's many but if you had to pick one yeah yeah i you know i think i'm gonna throw out one i was thinking about today and it's, it's a little bit of a cheat because it's really two characters but um <laughs> But uh, Roderica and Hugh just really hit me, and you know I think oh, part of it's like as a as a parent, anytime they're throwing in this like parent child relationship, which obviously Elden Ring does a lot, but like that's actually like a positive one, and I think they've gone over that trope. Like in Dark Souls Two, you have the blacksmith, and his daughter can't remember him, and he kind of remembers her. But this one really like I think that Roderica's arc of being this like person who was like going to die and then couldn't go through with it you know she like she she was going to be grafted or something along those lines and she just is so down on herself her self-esteem is so low and just Jeez, like yeah. i love doing the running back and forth like as you're sort of introducing hugh and roderica to each other like you're like kind of playing a matchmaker to like set these two up to have this like nice father-daughter relationship yeah. and just like by the time I got to the end of the game where you have, like, Roderica starts so, like, pathetic, but by the end, she's, like, you know, she loves Hugh, and Hugh is starting to forget, and he's starting, he's just going down with the ship, but she's reached such a point of, like, Care. you know, like, yes, that she, like, cares for him, but she's also able to let go, and she's, like, the exact opposite of being craven. She's so self-actualized, and she goes through such a process of being confident in herself and learning what's special about her that it's just you don't get a lot of arcs in those games because usually dark souls games end with and then they died so what, yeah so, they do something and then they turn hollow and then they're dead yeah <laughs> so it's just i love the fact that like she goes through such a thing and i just also think that her um voice actress does a wonderful job inflecting like i think yeah. that does a lot of work for me too is just I love I love the voice lines and the accent i think it all really the accents in this game in general like i've heard like 
you know, and I've picked up on some of it, but I heard that the regional accents and the way that they use them play really well into the world and just, I think subconsciously also do help to sort of inform things like Godric's got the, uh, it sort of plays into the fact that he wants to be a big Lord, but he's kind of got this like country accent and it sort of gives him less. He's got, he's got a, He's got a West Country English accent, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he's a little less regal, and it, it just plays into, like, Zio's saying, like, you're saying, like, uh, yeah, I also really love Godric, too, and I think he was given a lot of time, and his model is incredible. Everything about Godric, like, some of the people on the video, because I make fun of Godric a lot in my video, because he's so, <laughs> like, pathetic on the one hand, but... Yeah. It's. I also love Godric for that reason. Is everyone shits on Godric, and it's so he's a terrible person. Like he's done atrocities that are like not mm-hmm. up on the level of some of the characters in the game, but like he's just such a well realized character in that sense. And his accent well, and is that he's empathetic to a degree as well. That's why yeah. I like him. He, he's in a tough spot trying to live yeah. up to 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 Godfrey's name. Uh, uh-huh. No, he's a, he's a great character. He is a great character. Yeah. Yeah, um, hell order. So my favorite, I, I've got a few like honorable mentions. Like I really like Celibus and mm. I really like Moog and I like Radigan, but my favorite is Ofnir. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Gideon Ofnir, because he's just, he's, he's not particularly like deep, like some of the other characters, but when I discovered his full story as I played the game, I thought it was brilliant. I thought the way his story is told is, is superb. Um, he, his voice actor also is just phenomenal as well. Um, he he's very arrogant, Ofnir, and the way he comes across as just a bookworm belays the fact that he's actually just completely ruthless. Yeah. When when you realize that he sir he sends Ensha to kill you because you've found the half of the Halic Tree seal, and then he brushes it off as a mistake. Yeah. The way he just. Uh, brushes off Nephili once she finds out the truth about what he did to the Albanork village. The Albanork village itself, just the brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my other favourite characters is Latena, and she also links into oh, yeah. to obviously Ofnir's story in the way that um, she's essentially left immobile by, by Ofnir and, yep. and his decisions. Um, just the brutality. You get an understanding that Ofnir's the, the all-knowing and he is obsessed with being the all-knowing. The whole point of his quest in game is to find out the one bit of lore he doesn't understand, and that's Mikla. And yeah. that's why he that's why he burns a village to the ground and slaughters its inhabitants because he doesn't know something. That's how much it frustrates him. I think that's what he's just I just think he, the way his story progresses, he mm-hmm. he he hides the fact that he's a ruthless SOB very, very well, I think. Um yeah. And the way that he just disposes of Nephilim, and he'll even let you use his Selvas's potion on her. Um, uh, yeah, it's absolutely, it's absolutely. Yeah, you know, I'll do what you want. It's uh, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. He's a he's a great character. He's a brutal, hard, smart character, um, and he, he's just really appealing to me. And the the voice actors in this game just accentuate all these performances. And uh, I think you're uh, just moving on before we finish. I think you mentioned the regional accents. Um, and because I'm British, maybe I pick up on them more. But you're absolutely right. They are categorized by who the characters are. So I'll give you an example. Rani's cohorts, e.g. Blythe, Silvus, and Rani herself, they are all Welsh. So they are all they all have the same slight variations, but they have the all the same regional accents. And I think is it Pida Pidia, the the puppet 
seller yeah. uh, also has a Welsh accent. So it, you get this kind of impression of her cohorts having the same regional accent. It's just a lovely detail that they obviously paid attention to, and the localization team obviously just did a great job. Um, but yeah, Ophelia is my, my, my favorite character, um, and Selene obviously gets a, another honorable mention as well. But the uh, the NPCs, as I said on my channel the other day, are just the kind of high point of the game for me, uh, actors and all. Yeah. But I'll um, I'll I'll stop the podcast there because we could ramble about all these types of things for <laughs> for ages, and uh, it's three fifty in the morning here. <laughs> and I need to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I'd like to thank uh, the Lore Hunter and Zyostorm for coming on today. Thank you so much, guys. Um, I, I had you on here just to talk all these really interesting points out that I wanted to discuss. So thank you so much for your contributions. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having us, man. This has been a great one. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's been, been great. Well, 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 we'll three need to get together again when we come up more and more things to discuss. It's just been great just to hash these things out with other other enthusiasts. Yeah. Um, but for for those that are interested, I'll leave both uh, the the guys' channels below. Uh, they both got excellent uh, lore videos on their channels, so please check them out if you like lore. Um, but until next time, guys, I'll see you in the next episode, and hopefully we'll have Zio Storm and uh, Lore Hunter back. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care.